0: Have you listened to part one? I highly recommend going back and quickly catching up because we're picking up right where we left off. Rice is a female crop from the field to the market. We started out in West Africa where Oriza glaberrima was domesticated and it was adapted to over 47 different microenvironments by women. Women braiding
1: rice into the rice grains into their hair. Um, And then with rice braided into their hair, crossing the Atlantic. And these oral narratives could be telling us about one of the ways that rice is transmitted. They also could be telling us about the importance of women in its transmission and in its development.
0: My name is Maimuna Kante and this is Nafolo or Wealth in Bambara, the podcast that deconstructs the stories of African seeds and their stewards. I asked Dr. Ada Fields Black, who specializes in the history of African rice, what happened when rice and its stewards had arrived to the Americas?
1: Well, once it had arrived, um, it starts small. (laughs) And planters, um, South Carolina planters, begin growing rice in inland fields and the inland fields again. This is another one of those forty-seven different microenvironments, right? Inland fields are—they um, have a different principle of water. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A hydrological principle, I guess. Than tidal or mangrove rice. So they typically the fields are located on an area of land that has a a very slight slope to its gradient so that water flows downstream, right? And that water flows down into the field and irrigates the field. Um, They were relatively, they were productive. And mind you, this is in the early 1700s late 1600s, early 1700s, they're productive, but this is also the very sort of beginning of the commercial rice economy. And that demand is not only domestic demand, but it's demands for exports just kind of goes up exponentially. Mm -hmm. And the inland fields you could not control the water, which meant that you had the perennial problem of having either too much or too little,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. particularly at critical moments in the agricultural cycle. And there were things that were called freshets, which were um, floods, basically, uh, that often occur according to the... The lunar cycle the full moon it's like a a high tide during the full moon during a certain time of the year that would just flood the rice fields and mm-hmm. flood everything out and you know if you're that's bad enough if you're growing rice for subsistence but if you're growing rice for a commercial market it just won't do mm-hmm. and similar to years when there was drought and there wasn't enough water right if you're dependent on rainfall and you're dependent on sort of this natural occurrence of water, then your hands are kind of tied. So by around the 1730s, um, many planters, particularly very wealthy planters, or planters that some of them were not so wealthy yet, but they they had the capital to almost speculate on purchasing new lands and purchasing and lands that had never been cleared before and purchasing large numbers of enslaved people Mm -hmm. and they began clearing wetlands they began clearing tidal swamps so these swamps are located ah, sort of at the the point where the salt water and the fresh water meet and they would um Whereas with the inland rice, they don't modify the landscape at all.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Here, they're, well, aside from clearing, they're clearing the entire landscape, building dikes around it, building buns in between, um, just completely reshaping the coastline of, of or the rice field region of, um, of South Carolina and then Georgia. It was very intensive work. It was work, as I mentioned, that required a lot of capital and a lot of um, labor to clear these cypress forests. And then one observer says make them as level as a billiard table and then to install this hydraulic irrigation infrastructure. And so a planter had to be able to not make a profit for several years right? While they're reclaiming a swamp and until they're able to start planting and harvesting rice. So it was really families that had multiple plantations Mm. where one of them was making money and they're off clearing another few, right? And then after a certain period, they've got multiple plantations and then they go purchase more land and clear more land, if that makes
0: sense. I had learned this in trying to unpack the story of rice for myself, but Dr. Fields Black confirmed my thoughts. Historians argue a lot. And a lot of that is because each historian comes with a bias or many biases, a social conditioning that they use to view the situation before them. And specifically, they... Are serious about debates on origin. Where does a certain technology come from?
1: And historians are arguing about, have argued about what are the origins and the roots of this hydraulic irrigation technology. Many historians and even observers at the time who describe these hollowed out cypress cypress trees with plugs on them we know now that that is a West African that comes from a West African prototype Mm -hmm. relatively quickly though, because again, if you're growing rice for a commercial market, you have got to be able to control it. You've got to be able to get it down to a science. So relatively quickly, that technology becomes mechanized,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? And it becomes, um, wood and metal and all of this you know it's no longer a hollowed out tree trunk now it's a box with a steel gate and that kind of thing um, where someone can open it and then close it and measure how much water is in the rice field or not um historians have also argued that a part of the technology this ability to um, reclaim the wetlands comes from the english and their uh use of fins. So we go back and forth. And what I have to say about it is, okay, (laughs) maybe, maybe so, but rice is only grown in brackish saline or brackish water or salinity in two places in the entire world, West Africa, South Coastal, South Carolina, and Georgia, a little bit in Florida, a little bit in North Carolina, um, low country that's it. There's no salt in fins. So we can have a creolized, we can agree it's a creolized um, agricultural system. But I think it's also correct to say that the roots of that agricultural system are in West Africa.
0: I really like this term creolized agricultural system because I think it encompasses everything we see. And Specifically, in Suriname, two stories trace the path of this creolized agricultural system of African rice. There are accounts of women braiding rice in their kinky hair from the coasts of Africa to the Americas. And there are also accounts of maroons running away with rice braided in their hair as was done by their ancestors. In Suriname, the Maroons have oral histories of both these accounts. To her greatest surprise, when Dr. Tinde van Andel, an ethnobotanist, went to Suriname, she encountered African rice and its
2: stories. Yeah, I I have read these these historical stories, especially uh, the book Black Rice by Judith Carney, who who gives argument on that the first rice that was grown in the Americas must have been African rice. Um, And she used, like historians do, they use literature to, um, or other people's letters or or paper documents to, um, to, to stay, uh, to substantiate their arguments. But as a botanist, you want a plant uh, to Mm -hmm. get your proof. And I had the idea that, that there was, I, I bought a bag of black rice grains on the market and it was magic rice and people didn't eat it. And I, I didn't think about it. And then I thought, my God, I have this rice. So I had it uh, checked if it was African rice, it was African rice. So I went back collected the plant and I'm still busy trying to extract the story because the story is very, very complicated and people give different arguments on why they grow that rice. Some people say you can't eat it you use it for medicine. Other people say, I eat it, no problem. <laughs> uh, they sell it for a very um, uh, attractive price in very small bags, still in the shell. So that's not for eating, that's for offerings. Mm-hmm. But um, the story of the crops is much more complicated than the story of ordinary medicinal plants. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't further domesticated to be better tasting or faster growing. It sort of didn't change it. And, and most of the crops are constantly being adapted to, um, to their natural environment. So there's never a single truth, but uh, there's always more than just a magic plant. The plant is not magic for nothing. There is a reason behind it. it uh, a very And especially if people continue growing a plant for 350 years, there is a very strong reason because hardly anybody is growing the same plant for 350 years. Uh, there is a very strong reason behind that. Uh, otherwise people will forget about it. Right. So um, there is a story behind that. And, and well, for now the, the basic story is that people were sold into slavery, which is a super traumatic experience. They had lost all their connections with their motherland Maybe they had a few people that were still related to them, but most of the people just lost everything. The only thing they could not take away from them was their knowledge, their memories, their cultural ideas and practices, and some of their plants. So some of the the plants were bought as food in slave ships like sorghum, millet, uh, palm oil, rice, okra, bananas, plantains. And that was sort of the only uh, physical objects that they had from their past, which mm. therefore became much more important to them as they're the people who remained in Africa. For them, for many of them, rice is just food. But some of these crops became in the Americas extra special because it was the only tangible uh, physical memory of the motherland. Then people escaped from slavery
0: and they hid rice in their hair. Yes, just like their ancestors had done when leaving West Africa. Different women have been given credit for doing this. A common story in literature that was written down from oral history was that the Saramanca of Suriname attributed the beginning of their story to African rice. They explained that one day a runaway enslaved person came in contact with an enslaved woman known as Panza that was harvesting rice. The runaway enslaved person asked her to come along and in one motion she grabbed some rice and other types of seeds and hid it in her hair. Together they ran off into the forest. This is how the Saramanca got a hold of rice to survive. In in
2: the case of Suriname, they hit some of these rises in their hair when they escaped. Uh, when they escape into the rainforest, you. You cannot survive as a hunter-gatherer if you do not know that environment. That rainforest was completely strange to that people because it doesn't look like the African. It looks like the African rainforest, but the plants are different. So escaping and surviving in that strange rainforest was very, very difficult to them. So the fact that some women managed to hide seeds in their hair, and that was not only rice, but probably also okra, cassava, um, cuttings, and other agricultural crops... It's extremely important because that enabled them to survive. So the descendants of the people, uh, the people who descended from that, those women that hid uh, crops in their hair, they're still there. So they honor their ancestor because they she enabled them to survive. And they continue growing the specific cultivars um, that that woman brought because that was... Their survival. If they she hadn't brought those crops, they wouldn't be there. So there are many races that have women's names, and for a few of these women, I was able to trace some anthropological documents in which that women was also those women were also named. But the anthropologist had never asked. They only asked the name of the woman. They never found out that there were crops named after them. So I have now about five women of which which I know that they escaped from plantations with rice in the hair. But I have about 250 rice names of which about hundreds have a female name. So who are these women? Mm. And when I ask, some people say, I don't know anymore. And some people say, ah, long ago, grandmother. I say, your grandmother? No, long ago, <laughs> grandmother, grandmother, and say like your grandmother's grandmother. No, not really my grandma. So you know it. It takes a long time before you understand who these women are. And then I only have five, and I think there are like hundred more. So it was a continuously practice of women hiding seeds in their hair, and this rises. Yeah, we didn't do, I only did uh, genetic research on one single rice. So I have about 200 rices more to go for the coming five years. And I think there is a story behind it and uh, a, a very interesting story that has not been written down. And it's also... This agriculture is also under trap because people say, "Ah, oh, these people grow rices that are traditional. Uh, they're like they don't have high yields. You know, it's it's um, they're genetically too diverse, and uh, you know they should abandon this, this stupid backward agriculture. They should use improved cultivars with high yields, and that uh, we give them a tractor and pesticides." So, if people do not plant these seeds with their story every year, it's gone a very important part with this rice in Suriname at least is that when people have a funeral they are obliged to bring traditional rice and during the funerals funerals are a socially very important event but they have to bring their rice and together they are uh, milling it processing it cooking it eating it sharing it and they also exchange varieties because then you are there with all the family members of the, disease, of the deceased version and everybody brings different rice. So you can see, oh, let's try this one. Then. So that is the center of rice exchange and therefore a uh, center of uh, genetic diversity, what is being exchanged in the crop. What I heard is that these evangelistical churches prohibit people to go to traditional funerals because it's a place of black magic, because mm-hmm. people do ancestor offerings there and so on. So often when we asked, why do you grow this rice? What is your motivation? And he we said, "Well, oh, it's, it's, it's nice. I like it. It's free food. But I have to plant it because I, otherwise I cannot go to a funeral. So that was one of the reasons why people cultivate traditional crops. So if they're not going to those funerals anymore, there's also no reason to grow that rice. So then you lose your traditional crops and your whole history. The other hand in Suriname, people are, um, what can I say? They are also stubborn and they say, I will continue to grow my rice and nobody's going to tell me nothing. So some people say, uh, yeah, I grow, I even grow black rice. I, I'm, I'm a church person, but, you know, I, uh, I still want to go to a funeral. Mm-hmm. Or I, I do like this better than shop rice. So the churches are not, they don't go into their gardens. So they, they don't really see what they're growing. So they, they sort of mix it. and But they do have, I think, uh, with regard to um, traditional knowledge, they are pretty detrimental. And nobody is tackling that question. It's
0: tough because in trying to convey this story, how does one summarize a crop that is so intertwined with spirituality and religion? How do you begin to convey emotions associated with this crop?
1: I can say as a descendant and as a family member that People of Gullah descent weren't always proud of eating rice and growing rice. And there was a lot of pain, Mm -hmm. you know, associated with it, in large part because of the cruelty of enslavement, because of the deadly nature of the disease environment, and the deadly nature of the labor, the actual physical work. And so many. African-Americans who's, you know, who are from that region, their parents and grandparents, my parents and grandparents and great grandparents wanted to get as far away from it as they possibly can't could and did not want to think about it, did not want to talk about it, you know, wanted their children to go to school so they would never have to do it. I find it and have found it personally moving in ways that, you know, I don't know if my professors in graduate school, I don't think this is what they had in mind, right? Um, <laughs> by learning about just the death on rice plantations.
0: For Dr. Fields Black, what was surprising and shocking was the sheer number of adults and children that lost their lives, specifically the ways in which they lost their lives through chronic malaria waterborne illnesses and children with low birth weights and maladies because their mothers had chronic malaria i found it
1: i found it personally moving and also aspects of it were pretty shocking even looking at it as a scholar of west you know of west africa west uh, trained uh, in west africa where you know labor agricultural labor was sustainable you know cuz i always say you're not going to work your family members to death
2: mm-hmm.
1: your brothers your wives your their wives your children this is your source of labor
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and you're not going to work them to death. And so the the, the whole lab, model of labor exploitation was very, very different, right? Or even your sons, if you are thinking about age groups who are clearing land and planting, no, who are clearing land and turning the soil, or your daughters, if you're thinking about daughters, wives, sisters, women, mothers who are sowing seeds, right, and weeding and harvesting, et cetera. So to see the death and to to read, you know, sources of planters who were forcing enslaved people to build slave quarters, right, in very, Mm -hmm. in very close proximity to the rice fields, Mm -hmm which is going to increase the likelihood of contracting mosquito and waterborne illnesses. It's, it's something that really blew my mind. And I have to say that this is what did it. <laughs> it just sent me over the edge. Um, I was in South Carolina, this was 2014, So, I was pretty deep into the research for my book, although at the time it was just never ending. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) the year was 2014 in South Carolina, and Dr. Fields Black was deep into her research. Her and I laughed because she said that there was still a lot of work to be done, but nevertheless, she had a public lecture in charleston and an academic conference in columbia both were on rice but for two different audiences she also used this time to visit her family and on a whim also decided to construct the family tree in a weekend
1: i visited the church cemetery or the cemetery that's um maintained by my great-grandmother's church where my great-grandmother and my grandparents are buried. Mm -hmm. And that's my maternal side. No, this is all my father's family, my father's, my maternal grandmother's side, there we go. Mm -hmm. So I asked, I wanted to go to my paternal grandfather's side because Mm -hmm. even though he was buried in that cemetery maintained by the church, there were no more fields in there. And I went to our family patriarch who was living at the time and he sent me, he gave me the name of a plantation. It blew my mind that my dad's family was buried on this plantation. And it was a rice plantation. It was a rice plantation. And I went out there I went out there with one of my friends who's a colleague and I met you know because it was rice (laughs) and that's what I do and I've got I just picked up the phone and called my rice people and they were like oh yeah we'll get you on that plantation private property no problem and here I go and what I found there was pretty shocking that one of my ancestors graves was damaged and open and full of water and just in a really awful condition Mm -hmm. and you know i i was haunted by that i had to go back home with that Mm -hmm. and it was very difficult to look at my career the same as something that I would, you know, that I would write only for my colleagues and my graduate students, that I would write books that would say, stay in the library, and that most people would never hear this story. And so I began then, I wasn't active about it. I was active about telling the story and active about talking to people, particularly artists, um, because I'm, I'm a historian who is constantly inspired by art and surrounded by artists who are inspired by history and by books. So we're very complimentary. Um, but I wanted to learn how to tell a different kind of story. I wanted to learn how to tell it to different audiences. I wanted to do the research. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't want to write fiction but I just wanted to get the story out. Um, I worked with the the, um, Smithsonian National African-American Museum. Uh, It has a permanent South Carolina Rice Fields exhibit, which is based largely on my two books. And that was an opportunity for me to sit with the curator, Paul Gar- Dr. Paul Gardulo, who is a very dear friend, and to learn a little bit from him about the craft of telling a story. Um, I talked to artists like uh, Jonathan Green and Julie Dash, the amazing filmmaker and the wonderful artist, and um, decided that I wanted to tell the story through music right? And through classical music, which is a language that many people, Black and white, understand um, and hopefully could act as a bridge between our families and our communities and the desire to make something beautiful about a very painful topic And that if we made it beautiful enough, people might actually listen, because nobody wants to talk about slavery, black or white. And I guess the last piece of this, and maybe it's not the last piece, but (laughs) it's the last one that I've dreamed up at the moment, is writing a book, um, a narrative nonfiction. I'll say that in the course of working on the Requiem and in the course of um, writing this larger study that I'm not writing anymore as it was, um, I happened upon a meeting point of the two and that meeting point fascinated me. And it's the story of Harriet Tubman Mm -hmm. who most people don't know served during the Civil War and worked with the US Army Department of the South and was part of an expedition. She led a group of spy scouts and pilots who led a, two regiments of Black soldiers who were already free. This is 1863, June. They and their white commanders drove four gunboats up a small river in coastal South Carolina surrounded by rice plantations. And freed Tubman says 756 people in six hours without losing a single life. Wow. And so I'm working on that story now. Right. And this raid, it's called the Cumbie River Raid, is the prism through which I can tell a story about enslavement on rice plantations and tell a story of what happened to the people who were freed in the raid after the Civil War when the majority of them went back to the same rice plantations they would liberated themselves from.
2: Um,
1: So it's, I call it the best rice story ever. (laughs) And it's a lot of fun. And um, it's also in parts a family story because my dad's family was enslaved a mile away. So the rice plantation that I visited where the grave is about a mile and a half away. The rest of the family was a mile away, and I have um, one, it was my great-great-great-grandfather, I think it's three, I don't know how many greats I said, but I think it's three greats (laughs) who fought in the raid. Mm-hmm. We think he fought in the raid. He was a deserter, but he didn't desert until after the raid. <laughs> he was there that day. <laughs> so it's a, fa- it's a story that's very close to my heart, you know, and I think it's a story that is going to teach a lot of people about slavery. Mm-hmm. And it's going to teach a lot of people about freedom. And it's going to teach a lot of people about this, you know, West African technology. I think, you know, I think a couple of things. I think on the one hand, I'll start in Africa. You know, Africa as a continent, and that's I'm painting with a very broad brush here, is still not a place where most people in the West associate with technology. And that's wrong, you know. That is wrong. (laughs) And so that's something that I have tried to do with my work is to tell that story um, and tell the evolution of this technology in West Africa. Now I'm gonna cross the Atlantic and say that slavery, and I think we've seen this in the last couple of years and even in the last couple of months, is still a time period in the history of the United States, which is little known, poorly understood, and often denied by people who are not historians. And this is where I I get really passionate about writing for other scholars and writing for graduate students. For me, that's not enough. For me, that's not going to move the needle of your average person. And I think we've seen that that needle has to be moved. We've got to find a way to reach people and to come together. And I'm not just talking about, you know, white Americans who don't want to talk about slavery, I'm also talking about black Americans. You know, with the Requiem, I wanted to create something that was so beautiful that my family would be proud of their own heritage. You know, that they would understand what their ancestors had contributed. And we've got to find a way to reach our community and our young people. Africans in the diaspora, mm-hmm. we've got to find a way to bring, to come together, you mm-hmm. know? And so I, I, I believe that these are stories that we can all come together around. And I'm not advocating, and I, I wrote a libretto for the Requiem, which is the text on which the music is based, and it's, it's, it's searing. <laughs> <laughs> I not sugarcoat anything
0: for me what stands out even more is the work that both dr van andal and dr fields black have done their ability to use their craft and to detangle the story of rice with so much passion in many ways they tell the story of the stewards But they, too, are the stewards of rice.
1: I wrote it from primary sources, and I told it like it was, you know. I didn't try to water it down. Mm. Because making a sanitized version of slavery is not how you, it's not the way to go. You know, that's not going to achieve the objective it's still not going to be acceptable. You know, it's not about being acceptable. It's about forcing people to learn. And sometimes I think people learn best when they don't even know. They're not even aware that they're learning, Mm -hmm. right? They're focused on this amazing music, which is, it is truly amazing. So um, I don't know. I just feel like we've got to have, we've got to spark different conversations. And when people engage in those conversations, we've got to give them something new to talk about. They've got to have some new information with which to engage their community, members of their community, and members of other community. That's the only way we're going to get, you know, through to something we hope will one day be reconciliation.
2: So, it is also there's also a little bit an uh, urgent need to tell these stories, uh, because only if you tell these stories, then people realize, oh my God, this is really special.
0: I am so lucky to have been able to share space well internet space with these women as they pass their stories and gave me permission to share them with you all thank you so much again for being here with me today today's show was produced by yours truly but with tremendous tremendous help from my community If you liked this story, I invite you to rate it and review it. It helps other people find the show. Next time on Nafolo, we'll dive into a new story.